Hello and welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. In this episode, um, you'll hear an interview that I did with David Tickle, Principal at Hassel and Head of Urban Design. We were talking about a great piece of research that Hassel undertook some years ago called One Million Homes, One Thousand Thriving Communities. I am here in the Purple Podcasting booth this evening with our guest, David Tickle. Hi, David. Hello. I invited David to come in and have a chat this evening because several of the things that concern the board are research and the future consumer. So this conversation is sort of inspired by something that our registrar, Tim Horton, says quite a lot, that because of the nature of regulation and registration of architects being governed by a framework that reflects current, recent and past experience of practitioners, he says that if the board isn't looking 10 years ahead to understand what the profession needs to become, then likely it's lagging behind 10 years. So critical to that forward projection is contemplating what future consumers of architecture are going to need. Obviously, it's a hot topic at the moment in New South Wales, the affordability and availability of adequate housing for across all demographics. So that, in the back of our minds, brings me back once again to a project that um, we've looked at a few times here at the board called One Million Homes, which was a a project developed by Hassel Architecture in 2015, focusing on residential building types in Sydney, London and Shanghai. Um, David, can you describe briefly to me what One Million Homes was all about? It was really looking at those three cities and in particular looking at housing in those three cities to think about which cities are doing housing well, which ones aren't, and ultimately what each city can learn from the other two. So uh, we chose those three cities um, intentionally because they're quite different cities. Um, We have London, the older established city, I guess Sydney, I guess a newer new world city, and Shanghai, which is really um, an emerging global city, a very rapidly developing city as well. So we thought the three together would make an interesting global case study for housing. Um, And we looked at different dimensions of housing um, and how each of those cities is responding to those different dimensions. So we really settled on three critical dimensions of good housing being density, so having a degree of density that supports um, those shared city systems like transport and open space. Uh, We thought about um, the quality of housing as the second dimension, Um, And then thirdly, the delivery of housing. So how quickly housing is actually delivered in each of those three cities. And what we found is that each city does one of those three dimensions particularly well and one of them particularly badly. So for example, in Sydney, we have a really great quality of housing and that's in the design of of housing itself, but then also um, in neighbourhoods, streets and open spaces. the delivery of our housing is pretty good as well, keeping pace mostly with demand. Um, The dimension that Sydney is not so great at is around density. 
so particularly compared to the other two cities. Um, by comparison, London has a fairly good level of density, pretty good quality, but then is delivering housing at an incredibly slow rate. So we thought, why, why is Sydney doing that better than London? What can Sydney learn from London? And similarly with Shanghai as well. And so just to be clear, this is purely a research project, right? Yes. And yeah. is it the kind of... Presumably it sits behind a whole number of projects that Hassel has have running in your offices or in those three places as well. Yeah, so we have um, teams in those three locations. Um, so it's a great opportunity for those three teams to collaborate on this research piece. Um, and I guess as a larger multidisciplinary practice, um, we not only work on housing projects, but we work on um, urban design and master planning, landscape projects, um, commercial and workplace projects. So we bought into this research piece thinking about all those different dimensions of, of architecture and of urban design. So we felt it was good to start with housing. In a way, housing is the building block of the city. If you get housing right, you've got a good chance of making a great city. So we thought it was a good starting point in terms of this broader research um, program that we've been developing for a couple of years. And what's the what's the ambition of that research program? And I guess, you know, using this one as an example, are there, are there similar projects within Hassel that you've looked at? or it, We really enter into these research projects with a sense of... Um, really just wanting to speculate and innovate. Um, they're not really related to real projects, although what we're finding out of the research process is um, insights or ideas that we can start to apply to, to real projects. So using, I guess, the, the idea of it being more speculative or more forward-looking allows us to generate more interesting, more um, often outlandish ideas, but then being able to look at those ideas and thinking about how we, we then can apply them to real-life projects with real-life clients. So it does extend our thinking. It encourages us to think about things in different ways and to really explore totally new ways of um, planning and designing cities. Yeah, it's a, an interesting opportunity of the research to be able to take away the parameters that obviously are there when you've got a client who yeah. is anxious about when something is going to be delivered and whether or not it'll be in budget and isn't always so open mm. about um, innovative and challenging approaches to, I guess, um, a problem that many people think they know the answer to. You know, we we all ostensibly understand what housing means, mm. um, both in architecture and in, in, um, in development and from the delivery and the client side of things. Um, to the question about the consumer, in, un in undertaking this research in these three different places, what did you find out about the people that you were thinking about occupying these places? Well, we did do quite a bit of research and thinking about that, and in particular in Shanghai, um, members of our um, the Hassle team in Shanghai actually went into an existing neighbourhood um, and spoke with a lot of the residents about their perceptions of, of housing and of home, um, of their neighbourhood, to think about the elements of their neighbourhood that they love and those that they would change as well. Um, and interestingly, in Shanghai, it will undergo 
um, dramatic change over the next 20 to 30 years with around 50% of the housing in the city um, being redeveloped in some form. So how we, I guess, understand and respond to the desires of those communities to really maintain that strong sense of community between people as the whole physical fabric of the city changes we thought was a really critical factor um, for that particular study. Um, interestingly, in the Sydney um, research, we didn't talk so much to communities, but we did get the opportunity last year working with um, Sydney Architecture Festival to start to test some of the thinking that we had developed in the research piece. So looking at high density and small home living in our research piece, we then were able to um, explore that and discuss that with the community through the global one-to-one -one tape down. So as part of that project, we marked out comparative floor plans for apartments again in Sydney, Shanghai and London. And we walked through those floor plans with members of the, the community, talked to them about perceptions of space, how much space people need, how much space people in different cities are using to really again test some of our, I guess, intuitive responses to the research, which in the case of Sydney, we felt that there was a very good argument to say people would be happy living in smaller homes if the quality of those homes, the quality of neighbourhoods, access to jobs, to transport, to open space were all part of the, the picture of home, um, that people would be very happy to live in smaller homes. And through the, the global one-to-one, -one, I think a lot of that um, thinking was actually proven through those conversations with the community. Yeah, it was an interest. It was really interesting the feedback, um, <clears throat> the engagement that that project um, garnered from people just walking past those plans. I mean, I mean, we understand as architects there's a limit to what you can understand about a space just from the two-dimensional plan. However, it reveals an enormous amount to the consumer, the person on the street. And when I say consumer, I say that deliberately instead of client because I mean the kind of people who will rent and uh, live in these apartments who have no control over the um, over the design development process. Mm. That's all happened by the time they enter into the transaction, either as a buyer or as a renter. Um, I found that very interesting and the you know, I guess we hear a lot about people buying off the plan, but I, I don't know how many times people who are buying off plans actually understand what those little drawings signify. I absolutely agree. And the one-to-one, -one, it was fantastic to be able to walk people through those plans, but we also had the augmentation of technology that um, people could see a virtual reality representation of that, that space as well. Um, Interestingly, the plan we had for Sydney was um, within the Central Park building, so we could make that connection for people about that building next door to where we were doing the tape down was, you know, contained apartments of this type. It was a really great conversation, but I was amazed and I guessed um, heartened by the fact that people so readily could understand the complexity of these questions, but then also could have a very positive perspective on the idea of smaller, better quality homes um, as part of 
thinking about the future of cities. I should just say at this point, because no doubt everybody listening can hear it, <clears throat> while we're recording this very serious podcast, it's a busy night at the board. Most nights are, but you can hear the glasses clinking and there's a whole, there's a party we're anxious to get to. Anyway, on with the show. Um, I think that, yes, that opportunity that Central Park gave us to talk about the relationship of the small home, big life um, equation that inner city, high density development can offer if it takes into consideration the quality of that shared open public space, um, which is key in in the projects that you have explored in million in the Million Homes project. Um, so I think let's talk about the Sydney project, since that's where we are. Um, could you talk a little bit about the part of Sydney that you took into consideration and the way that you dealt with what is already um, a relatively high density space in Sydney? Yeah, so we looked at the walk-up apartment building, um, which prior to undertaking this research, I hadn't um, recognised that it's very much a Sydney invention um, in the Australian context. Um, so um, around the early 20th century when Sydney was growing very quickly there was a need to I guess accommodate a rapidly expanding population. Um, a new planning act allowed individual housing lots to be redeveloped into the two to three storey walk-up model. Um, so there were some very blunt planning controls applied around setbacks to the street, setbacks to side boundaries, the need for a pitched roof so it looked like a big house. Um, so those very blunt, simplistic planning controls and I guess the renewal of individual homes into apartments um, achieved one goal, which was to um, accommodate more people in existing neighbourhoods, but it did have a lot of detrimental urban impacts. So I think most people would agree walking through a, a neighbourhood where the walk-up um, dominates it's not a particularly good urban experience. They don't really address the street. They're very car-focused models of housing. Um, whatever open space is created within them is, is actually quite limited and quite poor in quality. So we're interested in thinking about um, how you could renew not only one building but a whole neighbourhood of this type. Um, and so we looked at Auburn, the area around Auburn, which in lots of ways has great shared um, amenity. It's got um, public transport, parks, open space, a lot of great things to build upon but quite a poor um, housing quality. So we thought about grouping a number of these walk-up buildings together. We looked at three. Um, in the proposal we thought we could retain one of those three um, and that by demolishing two out of three we could create quite a good development area. So Within that space, we then start to introduce a whole range of um, housing typologies from bigger um, terrace houses to micro apartments in towers. So really um, creating a whole diversity of housing as well as an increase in the number of dwellings and the number of people who could live there. And by being able to look at that bigger 
um, site, um, we could then also create a whole lot of new open space and new um, uh, landscape amenity within that neighbourhood as well. So ultimately, by taking this new model of renewal applied at the neighbourhood scale, we could double the number of dwellings um, within that neighbourhood, but also double the amount of publicly accessible open space. Um, so it isn't always just about creating more housing, it's about creating better neighbourhoods as well. And that's why the full title of our research piece is not One Million Homes, it's actually One Million Homes, 1,000 Thriving Neighbourhoods. So it really is about connecting that idea of home and neighbourhood and ensuring that we think of both scales as part of renewal, not simply just thinking about buildings. So it sounds... So obviously this is a design exercise, understanding how to address the um, environmental and social opportunities of these um, places and, as you say, create the thousand thriving communities. As a development proposition, that sounds like a no-brainer if you're doubling the number of dwellings uh, on the site. Is it? Uh, Yes and no. I I mean, it will obviously depend on land value and where you're located in Sydney and what kind of pressures you have around renewal already. Um, I think it's a good starting point. Obviously, doubling of density is obviously appealing from a um, development finance perspective, Um, but it really is a flexible model. In some neighbourhoods, we might triple the density. In others, it may not be quite double. So it really is about a system that can be applied and modified depending on the particular location that we that we'd be looking at. It obviously depends on the extent to which you've got control over all of those adjacent sites. Absolutely, um, it relies a lot on consolidation and a very integrated design approach. Right. So, to that end, um, as I said, this project was undertaken in 20, 2015, Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, since then, have you been? Have you had the opportunity to apply some of that thinking into um, projects that you've undertaken? Has it helped in the discussion about um, development potential or opportunity? Absolutely, it's been it's been very useful in terms of conversations with some of our clients around commercial outcomes matched with community outcomes. I've always subscribed to this idea that the two um, are never in conflict. They're, in fact, um, two sides of the same coin and they should support each other. Um, in a way, this research has given us some more evidence to, to um, promote that position with our clients. Um, it's also, I guess, given us a whole um, set of other things to be thinking about in terms of um, housing density, affordability, Um, those kinds of issues which I think are the big issues that most cities in the world are facing. So earlier this year we uh, launched another research piece, Super Density, um, that was really taking this conversation of density to an extreme. Um, So located in Hong Kong the idea was if we could look at that already very dense city and really push density levels even higher, what kind of I guess, social infrastructure or public infrastructure would we need to embed in that city to make that kind of density work? So it's allowed us, the housing research has allowed us to really take that next step in terms of um, questions around density. I'm also interested in thinking about how we build on the 
um, the global one-to-one um, engagement with communities around um, housing and density, how we might take another step with that and perhaps really quantify that discussion about how much people are willing to um, to share with one another. So what kind of trade-offs people will make spatially if it means that housing becomes more affordable for them. I think, so that brings me to my next question, which is about demographics and the, how that relates to people's expectations of living spaces. Um, obviously, as you said, um, we talked to a lot of people um, through the tool of the global one-to-one in a Sydney context. We also had a number of teams doing similar stuff around the world at the same time with greater or lesser um, engagement with people. Obviously through um, One Million Homes you were looking at three very different cities with very different conditions and um, in terms of um, policy planning context as well as the um, people and age demographics that live there. Um, is So you've chosen Hong Kong to undertake the super density research. Would that even be possible in Sydney, do you think? Yet? No, not yet. <laughs> At some point, maybe, yes. I think, um, I mean, there is a danger in thinking that all cities are on this trajectory towards Hong Kong-style density. I think that's almost the worst argument for density because Hong Kong is often cited as... Um, you know, the the bad side of density. I mean, I, I reject that idea because I think Hong Kong is, in fact, an incredibly livable, interesting, vibrant city because of its density. Um, it's also got great access to open space and nature because the urban footprint is so incredibly condensed. Um, so I think that, yeah, I mean... I. It's very hard to apply an idea for one city to another city, but I think there's elements of every idea or every city success that other cities can learn from. So I think in a way, if Sydney or any other Australian city is looking globally for for lessons to learn, it's about taking a little bit from lots of different successful cities, whether it's financial models from a city like London, maybe density and connectivity ideas from Hong Kong, maybe, you know, approaches to cooperative housing like you see in cities like New York and San Francisco. I think we can learn by casting the net wide and globally and then really thinking about what might work to the very specific conditions of a city like Sydney. And I think that brings us neatly to the question of the responsibility of architecture in that context, architecture and urban design and landscape architecture and the professions related to the development of the built environment because no one's doing it all by themselves. We often find ourselves talking about mega trends and as you said earlier, cities around the world are all facing similar issues about um, rapid urbanisation, increasing population numbers, shifting populations around the world um, and concentrated labour markets in city centres. How did the design professions, in your view, sit inside of that so that we don't fall into the trap that you identified that we might say, well, Hong Kong has super high density so we should just apply that here and that would fix our problems? 
I, d- I don't really think that anyone is doing it quite that dumbly, but I can see that there's a risk in that. In terms of projecting a future um, challenge for the profession, I guess is why I'm asking the question. Well, I think in many ways the architectural process begins with research. It's what we, it's what we learn. It's how we inform ourselves around what the best design solutions are. So. I think a lot of it is about just expanding what that idea of research is. It's not simply just the site or the brief that you're given at the beginning of the process. It is thinking about those bigger urban issues and certainly looking globally. If the answers are are globally significant or globally located, we should be embracing them. Um, So it really, to me, is about just expanding horizons, I guess, lifting aspirations about what we can do. I mean, Sydney is a global city, um, so it should be thinking about the best stuff from anywhere in the world. Um, so I think every architect, really, it's, it's, it's in, incumbent on all of us to be um, thinking in that much more aspirational, ambitious way, and also responding to the client's brief. <laughs> <laughs> Simultaneously. Yes, exactly. <laughs> But I suppose if you do have to to hand those tools of research and speculative exploration wherein the designer can exercise their best and most ambitious thinking in order to be able to engage a conversation with a future client or a current client or a developer or anyone really or um, someone engaged in policy to be able to use that research to frame a different um, di- future direction, I think, is um, that's an exciting opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, we are people of ideas and innovation, and so we should embrace that. Further to the question about how research influences the, the way that architects might practice in the future. Back at home, how does the Hassle Research Arm affect the way that you guys practice or the, the business model? It, I mean, it obviously expands our thinking. It um, opens up different possibilities and different ways of thinking about projects. Um, but I think a great outcome of the research, and in particular the housing research, was about connecting um, three of our teams in very different parts of the world. So really um, reinforcing the way we like to work, which is as a globally connected, globally focused team. Um, at the same time, bringing um, to our thinking, you know, very strong local knowledge and local connections. So really being able to combine those two things. So the research really does reflect and reinforce the way we like to work as a practice. Thank you very much for coming into the Purple Studio, David. It's been lovely to have you. And um, I can hear it's quite busy outside still, so perhaps we should head on out there. Perhaps we should. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you. I also spoke 
a little more generally about research and the board with Tim Horton, registrar, and Byron Kinnaird, recently, who's recently joined the board, about what's coming up in research for the ARB in the next year or so, including ARB Open. Tim, how does the board engage in architectural research, particularly with practices? So obviously we're not ourselves a practice, so we're very different to that. In some ways, at a very dry level, we are a regulator. And so what would a regulator want with research? I guess we're very mindful of those who are in practice, are often in the business of delivering a product, a building, an outcome. But what drives that is often an infrastructure and intelligence behind it that is sometimes imbued in the building, but also is broader than that. So we're interested in capturing that capacity and understanding it better. We also like to think that we play a role as a lead learner for the sector. Now, why? Because um, while we're deeply engaged in the architectural profession, we're not invoicing clients for our work. And so there is a capacity that we have to maybe bring that future slightly forward by bringing research into practical applications in different ways. Now, what does that sort of mean? We've been working um, around issues of mental health for architects. We've been mining our own data, for instance, to understand its own research value. And I guess we're looking quite close to home as to where research value may lie in some of the data sets and networks that we have available to us now. So I don't think we need to invent new infrastructure or new networks. And that's a really good story because I think it means we can pick up and sort of action research now. It also does mean that we can, if I can say, slightly open the field of research from just formal university-based peer-reviewed scientific method into a range of research types, ranging from survey and polling at one end through to um, deeply scientific peer-reviewed at the other and everything in between. Practice plays such a huge part in that. And I guess we want to both service that, but also we want to draw more intelligence from it. We've got some ideas about how we hope to do that. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about the approach of the board here is that it stems from, I guess, a curiosity about itself and I guess about the practice world out there. So if we're going to regulate practice, we're very good at knowing what practice is, but we're even more interested in what it's going to be. Um, And so I think a part of that is... A curiosity looking outward and a curiosity looking inward on ourselves, and and I think as a researcher, that you know that's that's a common trait of a researcher, is this kind of mining through things, sifting through things to try and see if there's something interesting. Even at the outset, it doesn't appear like it's a research activity. So I think projects like Made and the Bayer Hadley Travelling Scholarship feed into that sort of curiosity of just putting out feelers to see what's going on for the board. We see the profession from day one through our accreditation role at university. So we see the profession in its student form, its researcher and its educator form. We see the profession at registration and continuing into into practice and beyond, post-practice, as it were. So firstly, that's the breadth of the profession. So how do we bring that collective intelligence together? There are a myriad of ways that could be done very um, easily and and where 
small or individual parts of networks start to communicate. Awards programs are a great, if you like, longitudinal scan of trends, drivers, behaviours, decisions, for instance. At the other end of the spectrum, the board relies on, the board ourselves relies on around 80 examiners, uh, a pool of 80 examiners to help with the registration process. So they are examiners who are between, say, 15 and 35 years of experience. So say there's an average of 20 years experience times 80, we're looking at around 1600 years of architectural practice experience. How do we derive value and mine that collective intelligence around practice, professional practice, practice management, how it is evolving and how it has evolved? So again, these are the networks exist, um, how they feed back into practice and how we derive value from um, beyond practice across education uh, and uh, practice and post-practice is just one thing I think the board can probably uh, do some work to assist with. So we need to bring some volume to this. And one way we've done that is a three-year project that has some sustained investment and interest and infrastructure behind it, which is ARB Open. And that very much is seeking to create a, an open platform for architecture where we can encourage these learning loops into creation. We're not the only ones thinking about it. There's a bit of work in the US where this is being done and in Europe. And so we think, again, this is something that we can encourage more locally through our own action. I think that's a really exciting development, particularly in terms of how ARB Open might influence habits of practice, you know, across that great big spectrum that you just described. I think regulators could be seen as somewhat fortress-like sometimes, and that would be might be a reasonable position to have. But I think this idea that, no, actually we're going to be open out of curiosity, out of wanting to sh a willingness to share information and knowledge about practices across that whole spectrum, I think there's something really quite, quite simple and profound about that. What are the plans at the moment um, within ARB Open for nurturing research? Um, I guess we like the idea of the radical share. So we like the idea of sharing before we know what it is precisely we have. We jumped in boots and all when the board was invited last year to be one of the conference director partners for the Combined Schools of Architecture in Australia. It was one of the first times that we opened up that conference to papers from practice so that we were bringing practice and um, the universities together. So practice in the academy, often spoken of, rarely, rarely done or when done, done sporadically. So I guess at one level, we try to jump in and um, act even if we don't quite get it right, because that gives us a better um, uh, gives us a better sense of how we can um, create action and impact next time. At the other level, we're not shy of starting at the very small end. So for us, research starts with better access to more information. So at one level, the register of architects. Um, who would have thought that there's any value in in that? We've had it since 1923. You know, as of this year, for the first time since 1923, architects have been able to put their contact details uh, up publicly. That may not sound important, but it's the beginning. And what we try to do is, you know, we try to be authentic the whole way through. So ARB Open is driven by four key 
principles or drivers, if you like. One is to improve access to the data that we have. The other is that we've got, um, we want to uh, inform um, people better. That's members of the public, that's architects, that's policymakers. We want to engage more effectively. And the other one that sort of excites me is that we want to get involved in forecasting, if you like, a bit of foresight work. Now, there are um, things coming over the hill that we've already heard of that will change practice. We just don't know how and is likely to change the nature of regulation as well. So ARB Open is fueled by the very simple three-step question of what is the future of the consumer? What is the future driver of the consumer? What are the drivers next of regulation? And thirdly, what is the driver for the future of practice? Byron was mentioning our work with MADE, the multidisciplinary Australian-Danish exchange. The more that that project has developed, the more we realise that we're learning as regulators of architects, as design becomes more inherently multidisciplinary involving many more heads and minds and capabilities, that we need to understand how the role of architects may change as leaders or as supporters or in any other sort of complexion. And so we can derive research value from those projects as well. As Byron says, we need to be in the first part curious about those things, which allows our mind to be open. And through that, we can start to derive that value by standing back being really mindful about the projects we're involved in in order to then derive the value from them and radically share that to see if what we're hearing, seeing or sensing makes sense to others. So we want to sort of turn the board inside out and reveal what we are beginning to understand for others so that we can be a lead learner, so that we can be a catalyst for others to contest, conflict, challenge, etc. But at the very least, for the sector to move forward. We think it's been static for some time. Um, Okay, I'm going to have one more crack at this question and I'm just going to try and reframe it a bit because I think it's it's interesting that you started out by describing um, the context of that conference at UTS last year, the bringing together research from practice and um, from the academy. And I suppose because those different types of research are undertaken, are defined within different formalities and uh, um, derive legitimacy through some well understood frameworks, you are able to present a platform that can, as you say, um, share in a radical fashion because Mm, mm. that's really low risk for the board. So are you encouraging other practitioners of whatever stripe to take a similar risk in the way that they harvest outcomes of projects or are you offering a platform wherein they could address their projects from a different perspective? So one of the things that we do in the ARB Open um, strategy is to look forward to our role in promoting more practice-based research. So what does that look like? Um, I guess we um, don't see ourselves as dictating that. There's many different approaches The point, I guess, is that industry doesn't really have a a framework to fall back on. What does does practice-based research look like? It's why the work that 
Hassle is doing, for example, is important because it begins to set up a model or a template or an example of how practices can pull their collective knowledge that may or may not be reflected in projects and then be, um, I guess, published as what might we call it as works of um, hypothesis. Um, some might call it speculative work, unbuilt work. It's often and widely held that that work has value, and it does. The question is, how do we derive value from it? This then encourages design practices to work with media, for example, to craft those stories and to work into policy, like the work that the missing middle has done, which is really a masterstroke in bringing the gaze of the design community into the work of policy. That is a really important thing that's done. It's a way of encouraging practice to see practice-based researchers having purpose and impact at scale through its capacity to influence policy. If anyone would like to find out more about ARB Open, they should head to architects.nsw.gov.au um, and have a look around at, at what's what's coming up in research. There are numerous Byra Hadley travelling scholarship reports. You can also find out more about the MADE project, the Multidisciplinary Australian Danish Exchange Program. Thank you very much, Tim Horton and Byron Kinnaird. You've been listening to Architecture Insights and I'm Di Snape. <laughs>